Thank you guys for being here. I had a dream last night. Um, woke up at two this morning in a cold sweat. I dreamed that there were only 12 people that showed up this morning. I wasn't sure it's because everybody just didn't like what we were doing in here or if it was Martin Luther King weekend and everybody went to the lake. And of the 12 that were here, my PowerPoint quit working and Becky, my wife, led an exodus of half of you out the back door. So I went back to sleep and then I got up, uh, or not got up, I, I started dreaming again. And in my dream, I was having the same dream. And as I was having the same dream, I was actually standing up in front of y'all telling y'all about my dream. And as I was telling you, I realized, you know, there really are only about 10 of you out there. And as I was saying, this is about the way I dreamed it, Becky got up and walked out with half of those 10. And uh, <laughs> so I leaned over to her. I said, please don't lead an exodus out of here. And, and uh, in my dream, uh, uh, the second time around, the only difference was there was this big boulder. And I pounded the boulder and I said, please, please, please. I may not have a working PowerPoint, but I have a, a, something to say. And I pounded the boulder and it was styrofoam. And I thought, oh my goodness, maybe some, they're leaving because they think since we're teaching church history, we're not teaching Jesus the rock. This is like styrofoam and fake Jesus. And I thought, okay. So at that point, I went ahead and got up at 4 o'clock this morning and reworked the whole lesson to make sure we've got Jesus in the center. But he was already. And, and uh, I just tell you all of that to say, that's what I've been through so far this morning. Now, let's uh, go to church history. <laughs> Please come on in. If you need a lesson, uh, uh, Danny, are you bringing me a note? Uh-oh. If you need a lesson, please hold your hand. Child's sick. They need him to come. Okay. Uh, child is sick for uh, uh, Kinsey Garrett. Kinsey Garrett has a child sick. Says, I'm allergic to Ray. I don't know that, but Kinsey Garrett. Okay. Sorry, y'all. Um, read the lesson. It's there. And I hope your child feels better. Um, <clears throat> church history literacy. I'm very excited about this class because this is a chance for us to continue to learn about Jesus and learn about our faith, but also put it into a historical context of how we got where we are. Last week we had 302 people in here and we only had 275 lessons. So if you did not get a lesson, we've got some extra, we'll get some extra. Uh, we've also had a lot of people ask for the biblical literacy lessons and we're still working fast and hard to figure out how to put those together in a composite manner. So don't think we've abandoned you. Last week, let's begin. Let's move through this. We talked last week about pivot points in the early church. We talked about one pivot point being when Jerusalem fell to the Romans in 68 to 70 AD. That was a pivot point because up until that time in history, Christianity was so closely entwined with Judaism... The Christians worshipped at synagogues, they worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. But after the fall of, of Jerusalem, the Christians had fled prior to the fall. And, and the Jews uh, uh, regathered, and in their regathering made a decision to specifically write into their 18 prayers and benedictions that Christians had no part of Judaism and could not continue to worship at the synagogues and the temples. And there was a, a, a divorce that took place there. That was a strong turning point with the church. The church no longer had a rapid influx and a ready influx of Old Testament believers 
who understood a Messiah was coming, who had lived their lives anticipating a Messiah coming, who had celebrated Passover each year, trusting that the next time might they be in Jerusalem and might there be a a Messiah. Those ready inflow of of intellectual and smart and well-educated and well-heeled Bible scholars were basically cut off by and large from the church. But it didn't cause the death of the church. The church continued to grow like wildfire. But it was a very definite pivot point. A second pivot point that we talked about were the fact that the apostles were dying. We read about the death of James in the book of Acts, but we also know through history about the deaths of the other apostles as well. We don't know exactly how all of them died, but we have a pretty good handle on it. And as the apostles start to die off after the Messiah has gone, and you start losing these apostles, you reach a point where ultimately questions have to be asked. The questions that are asked is, who's in charge? The apostles are gone. The early church thought the Lord was coming back any day now, as in fact Jesus has taught all of us to live. Originally, they weren't concerned about writing down for posterity for Champion Forest Baptist Church the Gospels because they were able to teach and to follow and to talk about what had happened and they expected the Messiah to come any day. That's why the early church in Acts that Scott was preaching about today sold everything they had and held it in common. If you thought the Lord was going to be here in a week, why on earth would we be harboring up our bank accounts? Wouldn't we be emptying them, trying to make sure every needs are met prior to the Lord coming? And the early church was doing that in in early Acts. But we see the church throughout the New Testament starting to come to grips with the idea that maybe Jesus might come back today, but He might not come back perhaps even in our lifetime. And so you see the church starting to figure out, and Paul in his later writings like Timothy tells Timothy, I'm appointing elders in in my places and I'm teaching you, but would you teach the next guy? Because I won't be here. And would you make sure he teaches someone else? Because one day you won't be here. And if the Lord tarries, then we have a responsibility not only to our own children, but to our generation to see that the church continues to grow in truth in Jesus Christ. And that was a responsibility there. Who's in charge? What do we do now? The apostles are gone. Who, Who gets to decide doctrine? Whose call is it going to be? Who's going to decide right and wrong? Remember, no real New Testament put together yet. Who's going to decide right and wrong? What are we going to do about the renegade churches? Because there are some churches out there that I don't quite agree with. They're kind of out running on their own. They're freelancing. What are we going to do with the renegade churches? Well... These are questions that we see answered through church history. These are questions that uh, um, uh, uh, we, we, we look for in this class. Now, how do we learn church history? What is it? Hey, y'all, come on in. This is informal. This, we're just in a big room, but this is home. So if y'all want to just find a seat somewhere, y'all are just, you, there's stuff down here on the front row before Becky leads the exodus out the <laughs> back. How do we know history? Well, we know church history much the way we study any kind of history. We've studied history before, haven't we? How many of you have been to school? How many of you had history? Okay, we're pros. 
We study history. How do we know history? Well, one way is archaeology. We can go back and we can look for actual evidence. We can go into Rome and we can find the catacombs, which are these underground burial caverns that the church dug and used for three, four hundred years. We can go and, and from those catacombs we can see things. We can see art. We can see symbols. We can see pictures. We can, we can unearth how did the Christians die. We can get some evidence that way. But more than that, the way we know most of our history are from written documents. Oh, if, if I was to ask you history of, uh, uh, the history of rock and roll, well, that's probably not archaeology. That's probably not writing. That's more oral. Like Lewis is trying to tell me the best-selling album of all times is like the Eagles or something. It is not true. There is no way that's the best-selling album of all time. And I say, well, prove it to me. Well, he says, well, I heard it. I said, well, yeah, I can't tell you all the things I've heard. You know, I want some proof. And then he finds some little, like, Eagles propaganda magazine, and he shows it to me. Like, now he's got it in writing. Something in writing has a little bit more teeth to it than just something that's oral. I can tell you there was a war in Vietnam. I can tell you because as a kid I remember sitting in front of the TV when they talk about how many were captured that day, how many were missing in action, and how many were dead. And I can remember sitting there as a kid adding up how many years till I'm draft age versus how long has the war been going on and when's it likely to end. But you see, that's not in a history book. That's just an oral tradition that I'm telling you. But I'm close enough to it to where you can probably take my word for it. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you. But when we're looking oh at something darling, that happened... Oh, no. my darling, oh, my darling, you are lost in the forever dreadful Okay, I think the point of that is it's Clement time. <laughs> Clement time, though, not Clementine. Clement is, is who we're going to study this morning. You have no excuse for forgetting his name now. You might mix it up with Clementine, but it is Clement time here in the class. Clement is one of the first... <laughs> yeah, that was by the Eagles. Um, <laughs> that's on that best-selling album of all time. Um... Clement, Clement was a bishop in the church at Rome at the end of the first century. And he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. And we have the letter today. And so we can go back and look at the letter from Clement. There are lots of other New Testament writings. Next week we're going to look at the Didache. And I'll tell you a little bit about that as we get through class. But, but uh, there are early New Testament writings that are, are personal letters. We've got a training manual for early Christians. That's the Didache. We've got um, uh, um, an early church history book written in the early 300s by a fellow named Eusebius. We've got um, early writings that account for martyrdoms and how people died. We've got early defenses for Christianity where people are writing defending the faith. They're called apologies. Not because they're apologizing in a sense of, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, but that in the sense of the, the Latin apologia, which means a defense of the faith. In fact, 
with, with Roman emperors that are killing Christians, you have some stalwart Christians writing the Roman emperor's letters saying, how dare you kill us? You're the one who's going to hell. They don't quite say it that way, but they're fairly blunt. And, and they, they make no qualms about their beliefs. So we'll look at those writings and try and put together our church history with the writings we have. Today, though, it's Clement time. When was Clement time? Well, if Jesus was in fact... Uh-oh. I'm not going to cut Jesus off. Um, if Jesus is... Let's try it this way. Okay. See, this was in the dream. There goes Becky. Um, if Jesus was in fact born 4 or 3 B.C., and you may be out there and not have been in our biblical literacy class, and you may be saying, well, wait a minute, I thought B.C., he should have been born like zero. Well, yeah, but this guy named Dionysius Exeter, which is Latin for Dennis the Short, in the 600s got asked by the Pope to figure out when Jesus was born, and that's when they were redoing the dating system. And uh, he messed it by a few years. So, you know, but... He did better than I'd have done in his shoes. So if Jesus is born somewhere around 4 to 3 B.C., he dies 30 A.D., which means the church starts 30 A.D., then we've got the book of Acts that covers the start of the church going into the late 50s. Peter and Paul die in the mid-60s, sometime after Rome is burned. They are, are, are martyred under the reign of, of Emperor Nero. John writes his revelation around 95. John's the last living apostle, as Jesus had prophesied, and John is, the, is writing his revelation around 95 A.D. All right? Now, what we're going to read and talk about this morning is called First Clement, and it dates from right in about the same time that John's writing his revelation. Clement is over here, this dot on the boot of Italy. He's in Rome as a bishop of Rome. Over here on the coast of Turkey, the southern coast of Turkey, is Ephesus, Patmos, the island about 20 miles off the coast where John was writing the Revelation. What's going on in the world at this time? Well, you've got an emperor named Domitian. Domitian becomes an emperor. He's not a real likable guy. He comes in because his brother, Titus, is dead. So he takes over, he's not 30 years old yet, he's in his 20s, and he's a real wacko guy. And that's not like there's a biography that says Domitian is a wacko guy. That's just me looking at it in Lanier speak, looking back at this guy saying, he was wacko. And he was. He was very paranoid. Anybody that he thought even remotely was crossing him, he killed. He was a major uh, uh, um, persecutor of the church. The church had not seen persecution like they saw under Domitian since Nero. It is Domitian who's persecuting the church when John writes his revelation and talks about all of the persecution that's coming from Rome. It's a very interesting side note. In, in Domitian is one who has Christians brought before him at times to judge. And we have an account from a fellow who wrote, his name was Hegesippus. He wrote 70 years after these events, in about 160, in the 160s. We don't actually have his writings. We have him quoted by that church historian Eusebius I talked about. But listen to what he said. It's very interesting. 
under Domitian, of the family of the Lord. That's Jesus Christ he's talking about. There were still living the grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother according to the flesh. That's the Jude who wrote the, the little one chapter before Revelation. Jude, the brother of Jesus. Now we say brother, the same mother, different father. Um, who is said to have, and that's why he says, who is said to have been the Lord's brother, okay, according to the flesh. They were brought. So these would be the great nephews of Jesus. In other words, the, the, the grandchildren of Jesus' brother are still alive in 95 AD. And the grandchildren of Jesus' brother are brought before the emperor. And the emperor asked them how much property they had. And both of them answered that they had a piece of land which contained only 39 acres from which they raised their taxes and supported themselves by their own labor. The most significant part of that is they raised their taxes. Because Jews, one of the reasons Domitian persecuted Jews is because they wouldn't pay their taxes. And if you read the full account, Domitian's not as concerned about them being Christian as he is Jews. He says, are you of the tribe of David? King, they had to admit they were because Jesus was. And it was the truth. But he, they say, we're paying our taxes and we support ourselves by our own labor. And when they were asked concerning Christ and his kingdom of what sort it was and where and when it was to appear, they answered, it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom. It was a heavenly and angelic one which would appear at the end of the world when Christ should come in glory to judge the quick and the dead and to give unto everyone according to his works. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against them, and he let them go. This is what's going on in the world. You know, we, 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 we forget that these were real people. We forget that Jesus Christ was a real man, that he had brothers. This is, after all, the one who says from the cross to John to look after his mother. These are real people. Jesus is not just a real person. Jesus is God, a real God, the real God in the flesh. And it truly changed the world. So this is Domitian. Now Clement writes this letter during this time period. Clement, when he writes the letter, first thing he does is he apologizes that he hadn't written sooner, but he says, you know, there's some pretty heavy persecution going on here in Rome, and my hands have been busy. Okay? Why does he write the letter? Or in theology terms, what's the occasion for the letter? That's the theological word. Well, there's been a church split in Corinth. There's been a little mini revolt. Shouldn't come as that big of a surprise. Remember 1 Corinthians? Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 45 years earlier. What's he saying? Okay, you guys are dividing up and you need to quit. Some say I'm of Peter. Some say I'm of Paul. Some say I'm of Apollos. The really pious ones, I'm of Christ. You just need to quit because you're all one. Okay, The problems reoccurred, but with Clement, they're a little bit different. It's not so much different factions as much as it is the young guys have revolted against the old guard in the church and taken it over, kind of deposed the pastor and everything else. And so Clement writes this, and I want to look at what he had to say in three different areas. The first I want to look at is factual. Let's just see some of the things we learn factually about the church by reading 1 Clement. 
Then in addition to that, I want to look at some personal things, some things that speak to me personally about my walk with the Lord. Because Clement ultimately is a wonderful pastor who, if you, you know, part of me says, well, can't we just get this from the Bible? Well, of course we can, but that doesn't keep me from listening to Scott Riling deliver an incredible message this morning. Okay? That doesn't keep me from listening to a first century pastor delivering an incredible message. There are some things in here that I find very inspirational personally that I want to look at. And then third, there are some comments he makes about the church itself that are important to us to understand as well. So let's look at this. We'll start with the factual information. What I find most interesting factually, maybe most interesting, among the most interesting things I find is Clement knew his Old Testament. Whoo, did he know his Old Testament. He is quoting it right and left. All right, that's bogus. Do you know why that's bogus? Picture? Because that's Hebrew. Clement didn't know his Hebrew Old Testament. He used the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. So we're going to throw it up there instead. His wasn't bound. That one is. The, we know he used the Greek New Testament because his quotations of the New, of the, or, or Greek Old Testament, I'm sorry, because his quotations of the Old Testament come from the Greek translation. They don't, they don't read like he was just writing in Greek. It's very clear he was using the Septuagint. As we unfold Christian history, we'll see the church using the Greek version of the Old Testament so much that the Jews finally say, enough, we're not using it anymore. They've just Christianized it. He uses, and he knows this Old Testament incredibly well. I mean, he quotes Isaiah 53 almost word for word the whole chapter. Over and over and over again, he, he references the Old Testament. He says the Old Testament was given by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that invigorated the church, is who gave the, Holy, the Old Testament. There should be no doubt in our brains about what the early church thought about the Old Testament. It was the Word of God. Not only was it given by the Holy Spirit, but it had absolute authority over the church when interpreted correctly. I add that because that's what the early church fathers would say. They would not say, go sacrifice animals, because the correct interpretation is to understand the sacrifice for all sin that really counts has been done in Jesus Christ. But as a Christian understands the Old Testament, it has absolute authority over the church. So, now, remember where we are here. Apostles are dying away. A second generation of the church is coming about. And the question, who's going to decide what? Who's in charge? What's right? What's wrong? Clement answers. He says, go to the Bible. This is also when we're going to see the apostles' writings starting to be gathered up. Let's get those letters of Paul put together. Because he's not here anymore, but he had a lot to say because the early church recognizes the New Testament writers as authoritative also. So I think that's interesting. I read this letter from Clement, and by the way, if you ever want to get a copy, you can get them. You can order them off Amazon.com. This is called Apostolic Fathers, and it's got a whole bunch of the uh, early church writings in it, starting with 1 Clement. They're not hard to come by. Second thing I think is interesting in there, just factually, we get information about Peter and Paul from Clement. It's from Clement we read the following. Peter endured not one or two, but numerous labors. 
And when Peter had at length suffered martyrdom, he departed to the place of glory due him. Paul also obtained the reward. After being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee and stone, after having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West, Spain, which Paul had said in Romans he hoped to get to to evangelize. We learn from Clement, Paul was in fact successful. Paul suffered martyrdom. Um, whoops, don't want to go yet. So we learn from Clement what happened to Peter and Paul. Now remember, Peter and Paul suffered their martyrdom in Rome. That's where Clement is writing. Clement no doubt was alive while Peter and Paul uh, uh, died and were, were martyred. And the odds are he was uh, well advanced by the time he's bishop and pastor of the Roman church. So you've got a fellow who maybe he knew Peter and Paul. Some church historians say yes, other church historians say no. When I'm talking church history here, I mean historians that date back to the 300s. Some say that there was an actual acquaintance. We do know there in Rome, Clement had a number of New Testament writings because he basically quotes or refers to multiple letters of Paul. Already 95 A.D. He not only that does that, but he quotes and refers to a number of other gospel writings as well. He quotes and refers to the book of Hebrews. He quotes and refers to 1 Peter. And doesn't it make sense he would have Peter and Paul's letters there in the Roman church if Peter and Paul had been in Rome and died there? So that's what he does. Now factually, I also find something else real interesting. And, and, and I'll digress for a minute and say this. We have two examples of perhaps early church people thinking First Clement belonged in the Bible. The church itself said, no, he wasn't an apostle. It doesn't have an apostolic message. He was a generation removed. It doesn't belong in there. I look at it. Dale and I were talking about this the other day. And Dale's same way. We look at it, we say, isn't it interesting how now with our knowledge we look back and say, yeah, I see that it doesn't belong in there. Let me give you an example. This is from 1st Clement. In Arabia, there is a certain bird called a phoenix. When the time of its death draws near, it builds a nest and dies. But as the flesh decays, a worm is produced, which brings forth feathers. Whoops. And it goes on to talk about how the worm then takes the bones of the dead phoenix and flies over to Egypt and gives them to the priest. And the priest realizes it's the original bird, and this cycle happens every 500 years. And this is to show us if God cares enough to resurrect the phoenix from the ashes, don't you think he'll resurrect us? Well, there's not really a bird like that in Arabia. He was wrong. No flying worms. Okay? So, I mean, I'm looking at this saying, yeah, I know why this didn't make it in the Bible. <laughs> this ain't from the Holy Spirit. He knew better. But Clement didn't, bless his heart. He thought there really was this bird out there. So it's interesting to me to look at this letter and to learn these kinds of things. Let's go a step further. Let's look at the personal parts of this, that, that, that at least the messages that communicate to me. Clement spends, now remember what he's writing to. He's writing to a church that's kind of been uh, taken over by the younger guys. And when he writes this letter, he spends the first seven or eight chapters talking about a couple of things. Number one, Repentance. Repentance. You know, 
it is uh, an honor. It is an honor to get to stand up and to teach this class. And I'll tell you the reason it's an honor for me. Oh, yeah, I've got a bunch of hours, at seminary hours. Yeah, I've got uh, some, some, uh, a lot of time as a Bible nerd. Okay, I study this stuff. I, I love church history, and I've, I've loved it for a long time. But you know what? None of that makes me any different than anyone at this church. For that matter, the only difference between us and anyone not in this church is we look to Jesus Christ as our Savior. I'm not any better than any of y'all. I'm not any... I, 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 I just am not. I don't, I don't stand up here and teach any of this stuff because I've got some self-righteousness. And you want to follow my life with a microscope? You want to climb inside my brain? You want to see everything I do? It, it's, it's enough to make anybody sick. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you sit there and, and don't ever get the wrong impression when you come to any kind of a class. When you hear Scott Riling deliver such an incredible sermon this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit's working in him. You follow him around with the microscope, it's not going to like make your day either, okay? Because none of us have the righteousness to be doing anything except falling at the feet of our Savior. None of us do. And I love the fact that Clement, the Bishop of Rome, starts his letter with repentance because that's where I need to be. From repentance, he goes to a next step. He says, now that you've repented, I want you to start being obedient. But here's an interesting buzz. His emphasis in obedience is hospitality. I told Becky, this is one of my New Year's resolutions this year. It's already come out of this class. I've got to learn to be more hospitable. We went to a dinner party. I hate mushrooms. <laughs> mushrooms make me want to puke, <laughs> just to put it in everyday language. I can't stomach mushrooms. We went to this party, and, and it was very small. There were eight of us, four couples. And they had little place cards. And they, they don't have me sitting by Becky. They have me sitting by the hostess and another lady. And we get up and we move to the table. And right there in the middle of the plate is this little piece of toast with a bunch of mushrooms piled up high. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going to gag. I don't want to eat this. This could possibly kill me. And I'm sitting there thinking, well... I don't know these people well enough to tell them that they have a repulsive appetizer. So what am I going to do here? If I had Becky next to me, I could tell everybody, what's that? And when they look, switch plates, because she loves mushrooms. She's like Lewis, man. They, they're like walking mushrooms. Okay? I hate them. I, I really can't handle them. I thought, well, maybe I could take my fork and mash them up and make it kind of soupy. And I wouldn't know it was mushrooms. I thought, no, I can't do that either. I thought, oh, this bites, if you'll pardon a food pun. Um, I swallowed whole those mushrooms because I could not bear to chew them. Okay? 
it just gives, turns my stomach to think about it right now. But I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, do you know one of the reasons the early church grew as much as it did? Because the outside world said, we've never seen people so hospitable in our lives. And we'll get into this a lot more as we go along. But hospitality is not just inviting people over to share in your life. It's also sharing in theirs. I was sitting there trying to think, okay, wait, technically this should not be hospitality because they're the host. I don't have to eat this. I can tell them it stinks. No, can't do it. So let's look at some of the ways that Clement taught his brother church to behave. Clement says, unite with those who devoutly practice peace, not with those who hypocritically wish for peace. I love the way he worded that. Unite with those who devoutly, out of God, respect for God, devoutly practice peace, not for those who hypocritically wish for peace. That's pretty good. Jesus said it this way, blessed are the peace makers, not the peace talkers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, because they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, the people who devoutly practice peace. That's pretty good. It's a nice way of saying, in a, in a practical term, what Jesus had commanded. And that's what any good preacher like Clement would do. How about this one? <clears throat> To be humble and free from arrogance is what we should try to be. And when we are, a profound and rich peace is given. And that's from Clement. Humble and free from arrogance, a profound and rich peace was given to all. Compare that to 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To the humble, He gives grace. A profound and rich peace is part of that grace. There is great blessing in humility. Paul was the most humble of people. Paul said in Philippians, I don't count any man better than myself. To have the same attitude, he says in Philippians 2, that was in Christ, who even though he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a man. And then Jesus isn't happy just taking a humility role before God. Being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to men to the point of death. Even a despised death on the cross. And then Paul says it this way, therefore also God highly exalted him. Peter says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will, what? Lift you up. All right, how about this? Some advice to the women. Let our women, I like the way he says that. That's just very pastoral. Let our women exhibit a sincere desire to be gentle, a disposition to purity. I pray that for my daughters. I want my daughters to learn, and and they've got to learn it, at least in the Lanier household, it doesn't seem to be inbred, a spirit of gentility. 
I want my daughters to learn a spirit of gentleness. I, I, I want them to desire that and see that as a goal. I want my daughters to have a disposition to purity. I want them to want purity. Have you seen the clothes that are available for them to buy? The people who make those clothes have no disposition to purity. I would like my daughters to have a disposition that's not going to be given to them by the world. It comes from God. Here's the way Peter says it. Wives, show the purity and reverence of your lives, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Isn't that great? All right, how about this one? Clement, the preacher. God will do all things when he wills and as he wills. And none of these things decreed by him will fail. I can give you that assurance. I can assure you in whatever you've got going on in your life right now, God will do all things when he wills and as he wills. And none of these things decreed by him will fail. Doesn't mean it's going to be fun getting to the end. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt tremendously in the process. God's not numb to that. This is the God who gave His Son. But I will tell you, God will do all things when He wills and as He wills. And none of these things decreed by Him will fail. Paul said it this way to the Thessalonians. The one who calls you is faithful and He will do it. He will. He will do it. Same thing. How about this one? Okay, it's like the lawyer scales of justice. But it's got a theological point. How many of us have thought at some point in our lives that our eternal security or God's favor upon us is dependent on the scales? Lewis and Steve and me. I should have raised my hand. And a few more that probably didn't raise them too high. I got to tell you something. I was, in, uh, I was in New York. I told Lewis about this. It was a month or so ago. And I had uh, someone come up to me and ask me to do something that I think is across the ethical boundaries of what I ought to be doing as a lawyer. And I said, no. He said, why? I said, because it's across the ethical boundaries of what I ought to be doing as a lawyer. He said, you're not going to get caught. I said, it's not about getting caught. He said, oh yeah, this is that Christian thing, isn't it? I said, well, you word it that way, but yeah, it's that Christian thing. <laughs> it's that there's a right and a wrong, and that's wrong, and I can't do it. He said, look, I went to Catholic school growing up. He said, I was asking Bob about this. Bob says, that's not real Catholic stuff. He says, I'll run it by Kelly, but I don't think he's right. So I'm not, I'm not vouching for this being real Catholic stuff in Bob's talk. But uh, uh, he says, I went to Catholic school, and I'm Jewish on my mother's side. So I got all that stuff covered. And he says, the bottom line is, I know you, Lanier, and you've done enough good things to where it outweighs you doing this. 
What a wonderful open door to explain the gospel. Because that's not what it's about. I'm not in God's hands, and I don't have my eternity, because when you put it in the scales, I did enough good to outweigh the bad. Clement said it this way, salvation comes not from ourselves, not from our wisdom, or from any works we perform. It comes through faith. <clears throat> On the scales. Paul said it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is not by works. It does not come from ourselves. It does not come from works. Tell me, tell me that Clement didn't have Paul's writings nearby by 95 A.D., before John has even finished writing the New Testament and the book of Revelation, or at least at the same time. Last area, <clears throat> church instruction. Little interesting stuff here. First of all, I find it interesting that when Clement writes to the Corinthians and says, okay, guys, you're not supposed to like be taking over for the apostles' chosen successors. And Clement says, you know, the guys running the church now are guys that have still been handpicked by the apostles in many cases. You got a lot of people that are not only handpicked, but that knew the apostles. And you don't just run roughshod over them because you've got a new and better way. When Paul wrote the Corinthians, Paul said you stay united for one reason the person and work of Christ. It's one spirit that's called you. We partake of one bread. Jesus Christ was one man, one God, who died for all. And the person and work of Christ dictates that we stay united. Clement does it a little bit different. Clement says, obey the bishop. That's the reason. You obey... And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to put up a picture of a bishop. Well, all pictures of bishops have that funny little cone hat. Okay? And they didn't wear that back then because these weren't ecclesiastical bishops. Okay? So this is the closest I could come. <laughs> what Clement is saying is much closer to what is said in the book of Hebrews to honor your, your, your church leaders, to honor what they say to do. Because they are their, your leaders. They're put here by God. When Scott Ryling stands up as one of our pastors and says, go to Sunday school, those of you who, I'll bet you there's some people in here that might not have gone, but he just egged you a little bit. And he thought, you know, I need to do that. You have done what Clement and the writer of Hebrews has told you to. You've honored what your pastor's told you to do. And that's what he's saying. That's the reason you don't divide the church. Now, as we close, I want to tell you that I have a question for you. I want you to think about what's happened to you as a Christian that's caused you to grow. Because the book that we're going to study next week is called the Didache. And the Didache was a book that was written in the first century, while John's still alive, while Clement's alive, and it was circulated among the churches as kind of a manual of how Christians need to grow in the Lord and what Christians need to do to grow. It'd be like going to Grapevine today and saying, I need a book on maturity. I want to mature as a Christian. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at how first century Christians were taught, in writing at least, and discipled. And it ought to be pretty good. Here are your points for home. Number one, thank God for Scripture. 
We've not only got the Old Testament, we don't have to do it in Hebrew or Greek, we've got it in English. But we've got the New Testament writings as well, where God has, through His Spirit, inspired His apostles. And, and we don't have to ask the question, okay, who decides right and wrong? Who's in charge? We've got, by the provision of God's Scripture, read it, learn it, use it. Point two, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace talkers. It means you can't go home or get in an office situation. What did he say? He said, Ugh. well, I'll tell you what I'd do if I were you. What? I'd say, please, let's have peace. And if he doesn't go along with it, hit him. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace talkers. Three, God does what God says. Do not let Satan convince you otherwise. And four, let's honor our church leaders. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for the thrills of seeing how your hand has moved through history. Seeing that 1900 years ago, there were people who struggled with issues so similar to ours, even though their culture was vastly different. For having messages from your church leaders that, that can communicate to us this morning as Scott preaches. That can communicate to us as we read what church leaders have written in the past. And thank you most of all, Lord, for the, the, the ultimate truth, Jesus Christ, who has died for our sins and opened the way for us not just to pray with you, but to live with you eternally as your children. Because that, Lord, is our hope, and, and we build it on nothing less than that. The righteousness through Jesus Christ and his blood, in whom we pray, amen.